Well, I want to welcome everyone who's come this morning. Uh, I think most of you know who I am. I'm Tom Spiker, a local pharmacist and sometime fill-in pastor for Pastor Josh. Uh, I have the privilege of speaking to you this morning. And um, what I, I want to give you kind of an overview of what I'm going to be talking about. Um, normally, I don't do things that are highly autobiographical, but in, in this day, I am going to share something with you that changed my life. And the change in my life actually set in, was part of a sequence of events that probably led to the founding of this church, which will be 30 years ago uh, this September. And uh, so I want you to bear with me as I do that. It's not about me, but it's about what God's word does in the hearts of people who seek him. And uh, I don't even take credit for that because I believe God had his hand on me and was molding me into what he wanted me to be long before I had any idea of what was going on. If you're going to follow along with, in your Bibles, we're going to start at least in the book of Genesis, and we'll be in, in chapter 1. But it's mainly going to be selected scriptures, and I will project most of the things that I'm talking about. So as you see, I, I put the, uh, the title, if you will, of this is The Universal Needs of the Human Heart. Now, if I were to ask you right now to uh, take a piece of paper... And the first thing that comes to your mind when I say, what is it that every human being needs emotionally? What's the one thing emotionally that we cannot do without? And I would say that almost without exception, the first thing you would put down is love. And that's the right answer. That's the right answer. Um, But... In our context, we understand what that means. We're speaking primarily of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the type of love we receive. That's the type of love we love you with and want to project towards you. And we know that every morning when we leave on Sunday morning, Pastor Josh ends with that. You are loved. But what I want to do is challenge our thinking a little bit this morning because there are people in our world who really don't know what that means. Or because of their paradigm of life and the world and how things work, they may think of love as something completely different than we do. For example, we're people of faith. Atheists, they love their children. They love their spouses. They certainly love lots of things. That's not the type of love that we're really talking about when Pastor Josh says, you are loved at the end of a church service. Take The religions of the world, the Buddhists, the Muslims, uh, all sorts of Christians of all persuasions, uh, all these groups would say that they love God. Uh, And in the 60s, during a time of social upheaval and lots of rioting and, and unrest, the Beatles wrote a song, All You Need Is Love. You know, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. They weren't really talking about the same thing that I'm going to be talking about this morning, and they're not really referring to the same thing that Josh is referring to. Uh, They had the idea that if you just felt good about everyone and you loved them, that everything would be fine in the world. And we've seen in the last few days that that doesn't necessarily work if you look at the things that went down in Paris, just for example. But I want to scramble your thinking a little more. Let's take some of the most heinous people or one of the most heinous people that's ever lived on the face of the earth, Adolf Hitler. He loved. He certainly loved Germany. He probably loved his mistress, Ava Braun. Uh, We know that he loved his dog. We've all seen the old videos of him loving up his dog. Um, So he loved. Uh, We could say that substance abusers, at least at some point in the process, love the substances they're abusing and love what it does to them. Uh, adulterers. They love the adventure. Maybe they even love the people they're committing adultery with. And if we want to push it to a real extreme, pedophiles love children. You see what I mean? I want to narrow this down and really challenge our thinking. Uh, love is not the wrong answer. It's the right answer. I just want to be sure we're all on the same page when we hear that and when we express that to other people in the context of faith. 
So let's look at a few examples. The first I want to do here, you all recognize him, that's Robin Williams. Robin Williams was probably one of the naturally, most naturally funny people I have ever known, or I didn't know him, but have ever uh, watched or, or seen his uh, work of in my entire life. Uh, he was wealthy because of his work. He was famous. People loved Robin. He made them laugh. He made them happy. Uh, people describe him as a kind and compassionate and generous man. But something was lacking in his heart. And we know in 2014, Robin Williams, the one who made everybody laugh, took his own life. Here's another example. We all recognize Marilyn Monroe. Who doesn't? Even a generation after her death. She was universally loved and admired by people. Probably, I, I, w- I would hate to guess how many people dyed their hair blonde in the, in the late 50s and early 60s, like Marilyn Monroe. People named their children Norma Jean. Um, she had fans worldwide. And, and she had fortune. It's fair to say she was universally loved. But she died of an overdose of sleeping pills. We'll never know whether it was intentional or not, but by all accounts, her heart was miserable. You say, well, yeah, but these are people who are not associated with faith. Okay, I'll give you one who is. You recognize him? Yeah. We certainly recognize the scene there, don't we? That's Jim Jones. He was the the leader of the what was known as the cult of the people's temple who uh, uh, committed mass suicide in Guyana probably around, I don't know, it's been 20, 30 years ago. Um, But what we don't know about Jim Jones is he started out in Indianapolis as somewhat of a pioneer. He was a church planter. Um, He was a a really a, a barrier breaker in reaching out to the poor in a tangible way and uh, in race relations. What happened to Jim Jones along the way is, I, Lord only knows, but he became very evil and controlling of his people. But he was loved by them, loved to them by the point that they committed suicide for him at his command. And we know from his own autopsy that he died from a self-inflicted gun wound. So obviously... There was something lacking in his heart as well. And this last picture I have is one that, of all the things from World War II, haunts me about as much as any of them. This is a picture of a little girl, probably born sometime, just looking at the age of her, probably in the late 30s. So some of you are about her age. Um, She, you know, we've all got... Uh, grandkids, children, nieces, nephews, neighbors, they go to school and one of the first things they start to do is they draw pictures of home where you have the flowers and the tree and the house and the, you know, the crooked chimney and you know, the adorable things they write with a few people in the yard. This is what she drew of home after the horrors of World War II. Look at her eyes. That's just haunting. And there were millions of this sort of orphan after World War II. Well, at least someone loved her uh, enough to care for her in an orphanage. But how could that little girl go on and live any sort of normal life? I've often wondered that. And really, that's more of the, the typical of the human experience than what most of us have known. So let's, that's the emotional side of things. Let's just clear up the physical side of things. For the Bible tells us pretty clearly in 1 Timothy verses 6 through 8 about the physical side of life. It says we are, uh, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, if I would ask you to write down before you saw this, what what constitutes great gain? Unless you're just familiar with that verse, most people wouldn't write down godliness and contentment. But that's what the Apostle Paul says is great gain before God. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, we cannot take anything out of this world. Many wealthy people died in 2015. My dad died in 2015. You know what? They all took the same thing out of this world. Nothing. But, he says, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Food to eat. Clothing for our bodies. And the term clothing carries with, us, with it the idea of uh, 
covering over the body and over the head. So shelter as well. And how many of us would be content with that? You see what I mean? God views things a lot differently than we do. And we need to have the mind of God when we think about things like contentment and gain in this world. And, you know, so food to eat, shelter, and and three out of the four people that we showed pictures of there had every physical creature comfort imaginable. And they were miserable. They were miserable. Why? Because the basic needs of their hearts were not met. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Um... Have you ever wondered why Americans are so miserable? I do a lot. Because we're as affluent as any people that have ever existed in, the, in, in, in human history as, as a group of people. But in 2012, the last time I could find the, the, the most recent statistics I could find, it says that 16 million Americans suffered a severe depressive episode. And it's estimated that 50% of depressed, severe depressive episodes are not ever reported. So let's just round that out and say 30 million people in the United States in 2012 suffered a severe depressive episode. Just to give you an idea of the number of people that is, I just heard this week that there's about 21 million military veterans. So that's a lot of people. who suffer. And that's not to mention everything that's moderate to mild. These are only the severe ones. It's estimated that a depression and feeling of loneliness and worthlessness cost the U.S. economy about $80 billion annually. Obviously, the deep needs of the human heart are not being met through affluence. Now, I'm a pharmacist, so I realize that there are physical, organic problems that contribute to this. But in most, much, almost all of the time, the problem can be fixed or at least modified by having one's foundational emotional needs met. Well, friends, this morning, I have good news for you. The Bible gives us the answer to the universal needs of the human heart. There are three. I want to back up now to a little bit to give you the mindset of when this truth came to me. I want to go back to January of 1986. I would have been 34 years old at that time. Our children were ages 9, 5, and 3. In January of 1986, I had already been a lay pastor in the church of my youth for a little over two years. And you need to understand, uh, you think, oh, okay, so what? Well, in the context that I grew up in, that was a big deal. That was a real big deal. Because I grew up in a, in, a, in a faith context, some things I'm very thankful for. For example, I never remember a time in my life that I didn't know that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. That I didn't know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That he was buried and rose again the third day. And that you could believe in Jesus if you gave your life to him and you could go to heaven. I honestly do not remember a time in my life when I did not have a basic understanding of that. And I'm very, very thankful for that. You talk about privilege. That's privilege to grow up in that sort of a circumstance. However, it was in a religious context. And all of that was tied in with joining the church of my youth. Now, we think of church as lots of good people, lots of good denominations out there. But in my context, there was one. And I was taught from my littlest days up that, yeah, there's good people out there. Yeah, there might be some other Christians. But the only way you can know or have, have a good, reasonable chance is to join this particular denomination. And if you don't, well, you're walking away from your heritage. You're denying your family. You're, you're, you're uh, lessening the example that's been set for you. There's a glass ceiling that you can never quite rise above in your extended uh, family and social context unless you join this particular denomination. I'm not here to mock them or to knock them down or anything, but this deeply affected me as a child. It really did. And uh, in our family, it was very patriarchal. 
I grew up under in the, in the same farm as my grandma and grandpa Beer. It was many blessings to that. But he was the pastor of this church for over 50 years. And so all my life, I was, I, that, if I knew that if I wanted to please Grandpa Beer, if I wanted to affirm my heritage, if I wanted to honor my family, I would join this denomination when it came time. Now, you, if you didn't grow up in something like this, it's very hard to understand. But trust me, as a sensitive individual, I took this very deeply and seriously. And doing so not only would do all those things, it would be proof positive in that social context that my parents were good parents. So that was another pressure. So in 1971, I went through the, dep- the repentance process and, and I came in and, and achieved membership in that denomination. Now here in, in January of 1986, I had become a lay pastor which in the eyes of the extended family, that was just about as good as it could get to actually have a preacher in the church. And uh, having this following my grandpa's 50 years was like a cherry atop a Sunday. It really was. But there was a problem. For me, it was a big one. In studying to become a lay pastor in the years before that, I knew that I, if, if put into that position, I would have to go up on a Sunday morning and open up the Bible and preach a message. And I realized I didn't know the Bible nearly well enough to do that. So I threw myself into a personal Bible study that un, unlike anything I had ever done before. And as a result of that, I came to hold some beliefs that were not consistent in the denomination of my youth. Here I was holding these different views than the people I was preaching to. And people were starting to catch on. I knew I could not stay true, could not stay there and be true to my convictions. But leaving would be, mean humiliation for my parents, my grandparents, my extended family. It would mean denying my my heritage. It would mean loss of approval of people that I had gained such high esteem for. I remember one old man who was a pillar in the church when it first began to leak out that there might be some problems with Tom coming to me. You're not going to let me down. You're not going to disappoint me, are you? I was even counting on you having my funeral. Stuff like that. I mean, again, you got to know me. I have a thin skin. That, that, I took that very Seriously, that hurt. What am I going to do? And I didn't know, my struggle was intense because, again, being raised in this circumstance, I didn't know any other believers outside that context. I was taught that the best anyone else had was a little something. They may have something. So who do you go to? So what I did is I sat down and I started writing my, my circumstances. And I wrote down a letter who, who I was and what I was dealing with and described the denomination that I was in. And I sent it away to two places. One was Grace Community Church or John MacArthur's church. And the second one was Insight for Living, Chuck Swindoll's church. And I just addressed it to their counselor staffs. I was frantic. And... In January of 1986, I got a letter in the mail. And the simple truths that this counselor gave me in that letter opened my eyes, cleared the fog, and really began to set me free. Nine months later, while I had never entertained the slightest thought of such a thing, Wallace Community Bible Church had its first service in the school in Milford, September of 1986. And I want to share that with you today because I will venture to say that some of you are struggling with the same things. And if not, you all know people who are struggling with it. And if you get these truths in your head, it's a great form of of evangelism to tell them how these needs, what they are. They'll, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, here's how they can be met. So that's my twofold purpose this morning. There are three of them. The first is this. They're really very simple. We have, first need to have a sense 
of belongingness. We all need to belong to someone or something. Uh, the, The opposite of that is I just feel so alone. We all need to feel like we belong to someone or something. In an attempt to fulfill these needs, people do all sorts of things. They join clubs. They join churches. They go to their special bar where people know them and they're accepted. Um, Most often it's through relationships, you know, hoping that somehow they can convince someone that, that they belong to them. Some people... Many people pursue that need to the point of desperation. The second need is this. We all need to have a sense of worth. We all need to feel we are worth something to someone or to some cause or to some organization. Uh, On the other side of the coin, feeling worthless is painful. It's debilitating. Uh, People seek the fulfillment of this need in many, many ways, sometimes to the point of desperation, needing to feel just that simple that I'm worth something. And the third one is this. We all need to have a sense of competence. Without exceptions, human beings need to assure themselves that they can do something or, 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 um, or some things well. We all need to know that we can work or act or move within a context acceptably or well. And we all know that some, you know, we all need to know that someone or some organization sees this in us. Again, some pursue this fulfillment of this to the point of desperation. So the first one, belongingness, the downside is that I feel so alone. The second one is worth. I am so worthless. You see how depressed people need these needs? The third one is competence. I am so dumb. I can't do anything. I'm a dud. You see what I mean? Well, with these needs identified, I want to go back to my early situation in early 1986 when I received this letter. I knew what I believed. Okay, um, I, I knew what I believed. I knew it was not compatible with the denomination that I was, well, I, was, I was preaching to. But you need to understand, church meant that church. And family equaled church for me. Now, I'm not saying everyone in there feels that way, but that's how I felt. And I'm not saying anyone set out to really pound that into my brain. But it was there. And despite this, I did, not, you know, I did not think I could leave without denying my family, my heritage, and my destiny. I knew it would make me an outcast, that relationships would be broken. I was frantic. And the author of this letter knew what my problem was because I had sent it to him. And, and he could see right through it. He hit the nail on the head when he wrote this. This is part of the letter. We can always discern truth, Tom, by looking carefully at the source of power. Pseudo-Christians and false religions derive their source of authority from the power to curse. By contrast, in Judaism and Christianity, as revealed in the Bible, there lies inherent in the message of God communicated to his people, the power to bless. Let me ask you a question. Just right off the top of your head. When you think of God, do you look, think of someone who's out there waiting to crush you under his feet? Or do you think of someone who wants to bless you? Well, growing up, the first 30 years of my life, I knew God loved me, but I thought God only loved me if I did what he wanted. And doing what he wanted was in this social context, religious context. He goes on, in false forms of religion, the attraction is to the group. 
adherents to this group are given feelings of belongingness, worth, and competence. This is what we've been talking about. Should they ever wish to leave the group, however, these assurances are hastily, hastily withdrawn. The result is a feeling of loneliness, isolation, and vulnerability. Sometimes the need for these psychological assurances is so great that the defector will rejoin the group he or she has left. Now, I'm not saying, please do not understand, misunderstand me. Do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying I came from a cult. However, in this sense, it affected me that way. And most of it was my problem. I take, I take responsibility for that. It was my head that felt this way. But think of the disciples of Jim Jones. <laughs> you think they thought they could leave that group? You know very well they couldn't. Think of other cults we've all known. People are scared to death because the instant they walk out of there, they are a person non grata. They are absolutely alone. And that's why oftentimes they go back. Then he invited me to carefully consider what the Bible teaches on the subject of meeting these critical needs. Here's the first thing. Man's basic emotional needs were provided for, whoops, blank slide, were provided for in creation. In creation. Now we know, because if you've been here, that Pastor Josh has been going through a series called The Story. So we've seen this very recently here. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them, made man in his image. Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28 says... Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fishes of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. We were God's special creation. Only human beings could know God. Only human beings could have a relationship with God. Um, They drew their identity from this. In a very real sense, Adam and Eve belonged to God. There's more. Adam and Eve, we know from Genesis' account, were made for each other. Uh, They had a unique sense of oneness. They belonged to each other. And there's even more than that. God had prepared a beautiful garden or environment in which they could live and function and act easily. So they had absolute belongingness, vertically to God, horizontally to each other, environmentally in the garden. They belonged in a very deep sense of the word. Now, Adam and Eve were also the apex of God's creative handiwork. God fellowshiped with them during the cool of the day, we're told in Genesis um, 3.8. In a very real sense, Adam and Eve knew they were unique. They had a deep, fulfilling sense of worth to God in creation. And God gave them work to do. They were to rule or have dominion over the earth. And the earth was benign so the work could be done easily and well. There was no sin. And so they enjoyed a sense of competence. They could do and perform and act and work reasonably well. Everything was beautiful. But fulfillment of our basic human needs was lost In the fall of man. Let's think about this. This fulfillment was lost when sin entered the world. Sin separated Adam and Eve from God. What did they do according to Genesis 3.8? Instead of fellowshipping with God in the garden in the cool of the day, what did they do? They hid themselves. They hid themselves. And they were later expelled from the garden. Gone was that perfect sense of belongingness. As a result of sin, Adam and Eve had a new sensation of shame. We know that they they made clothes. They were aware of their nakedness. Uh, They had no longer this, this complete sense of worth to God. And furthermore, God cursed the ground and said from the sweat of their brow, they would have to eke out a living working it. So gone was their sense of competence as well. The introduction of sin into the world changed everything because it fractured the relationship between God 
and his creation, his human, we human beings. Every human being is given the image of God. Adam and Eve bore that image perfectly. And as Pastor Josh has said a number of times, we still bear the image, but it's a marred image. You know what marred means? If any of you wear glasses, just take them off. Now, I could pick out some of you out there. I can't read my notes. That's a marred image. God wants to bring us back into focus. And by the way, the only thing petite about me are my ears. And this little headset doesn't work very well with me. There we go. I'm back. Where am I here? What what was I talking about? (laughs) The fall of man was lost in the fall of man. Well, we talked about, yeah, sin changed everything. And we know that in grace, God has provided for the needs throughout the ages. Um, And in Genesis 3.15, we were even given the promise of of a Savior that would come and crush Satan's head and and allow us to be restored into a right relationship with God. However, all of us, every human being that has ever lived, continues to have these feelings for belongingness, work, worth, and competence. So what's the answer? Here it is, friends. This is what I want you to know. This is what I want you to be able to elucidate to other people. Our basic emotional needs are truly and permanently met in salvation. Truly and permanently met in salvation. This plan and purpose of God has provided perfectly for that. And the solution is this. Listen here. The solution is a new, reconciled, restored relationship with each member of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Hang with me here. When we believe in Jesus as our Savior from sin, we are brought into a new and vital and and restored relationship with God the Father. We have been made members of his family. We are accepted by him. We have access into his presence. I'll give you a little secret of what I've always done before I preach a message. The last thing I do before I leave the house, I find a quiet place. I kneel down and I pray to God, you know, Lord, boldly. But humbly, I approach your throne of grace and ask for help in this my time of need. I don't mean that corny. I take real comfort in that, that I can go right to the throne of God and ask for that. I don't think I could do it without that confidence. So, we're brought into this relationship. We are accepted by him. We have access into his presence Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. You know what? If I was holding a nuclear bomb in my hand and I decided to go boom, in my mind, this verse, these verses are like that with an explosion of truth. Look at that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Look at that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. How's that? In Christ. With what? With every spiritual blessing. To what degree? In the heavenly places. And what does it say about heaven? That eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. That's the type of blessing that God has blessed us with in Christ in the heavenly places. Wow. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. However old this world is, you say it. You get it in your mind. Before then, God knew you if you're a believer. How wrap your brain around that one. That we, and he pre, before the foundation of the world. Why? What was his purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Do you realize by the time we are glorified, we will be holy and blameless before God? I don't know about you, but that's an unthinkable thought in my present state. 
Wow. He predestined us in love for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We call him Father. Romans 8, 15 and Galatians 6 tells us we cry out, Abba, Father, to God. It conveying a tender, intimate, free, uh, loving relationship. It's like Daddy. Let me tell you a story that I thought of this week about that. When my son Travis was about fifth or sixth grade, he wanted to show me how good he was at catching turtles. So I I took him and we went down those drain ditches next to us west of our house there. And we walked along there until he spied just just a little tip of a snapper turtle. They stick their nose up through the algae. He said, watch, Dad, watch this. Here he was barefooted with shorts. He walks down into that icky, mucky gunk, completely covered with algae, sinks up to his waist practically, you know, shuffles along a little bit, and he reached down in the water and pulls up this huge snapping turtle by the tail. And I'll tell you what, I was, whoa! I mean, he starts trying to get back to the shore with it. Now he's still a little boy. And he gets to the shore and he can't get back up. And this turtle's just digging and fighting his head up, trying to bite. And, and you know, Travis, at that point, he screamed, Daddy! <laughs> I never remember him calling me Daddy, except then. And I never remember him screaming. I went down there, you know, walked down, and together we were able to pull that. And it was a big one. You know, probably weighed 20 pounds or so. And he was so proud of himself. I, I, I don't think I've ever even told Tammy that story. But I thought of it this week. Listen, that's the type of relationship God wants us to have with him. We get in trouble, we scream out, Daddy. And he's, he's a lot more capable of helping than I was pulling that turtle out of the mud. So... We truly and permanently belong to God the Father in salvation. Now think of that. No human being can take that away from us. No institution can take that away from us. No set of circumstances can ever take that away from us. And you know what that that does away with? Feelings of anxiety. Whoops. There we go. Feelings of anxiety. Why worry? If we really believe that. Secondly, salvation brings us into a real and permanent relationship with God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what did Jesus do for you and you and you and me? He died on the cross. He allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, shed his blood, and die. Why? So that the penalty for your sin and my sin could be paid. So that we can be reconciled into a right relationship with God. He did that for us. Why did he do that? Love. Love. Uh, And when did he do that? About 2,000 years ago. Most historians believe 32 A.D., thereabouts. Now, I want you to think real quick. Something in your life that you're really ashamed of. Maybe no one else even knows about it. That you're never quite able to get rid of. Okay? Now, let's think of something in the last 24 hours. That maybe we said or thought or didn't say. Things that we should have done we didn't do. You know what? 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for both of those. He paid the penalty for both of those. And what God wants for us as his children is to bring that before him in repentance and restoration. It's all paid for before any of us, 2,000 years before any of us existed. And do you know what this takes care of? What it subdues? Come on, there, whoa! Can you go back one? Guilt takes feelings, rid of feelings of guilt. Sounds good to me. So God the Father, God the Son, 
Salvation brings us into a real and permanent relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Our ability to cope with the harsh realities of life are restored as we allow God the Holy Spirit to work in us, to take control of our lives. He indwells us. He empowers us. You want me to put it just in one sentence? The Holy Spirit gives us power to live lives that honor God. Apart from that, we cannot do it. We can't. God, the Holy Spirit, empowers us to live lives that honor God. And I think I've got it up there. So we are truly and permanently competent through God, the Holy Spirit. Now... Still, as believers, we fail. We feel anger at times. We, we are rejected at times. We are humiliated at times. You know what the reality of this truth can do for us as we lean on it? It subdues feelings of anger. Subdues feelings of anger. That's it, friends. Tell me a human being that doesn't need to know that. That's it. Now, what I want to show you next is a picture of our family in the spring of 1986. And I'm going to include in that some words that this letter concluded with. There we go. Haven't changed a bit, have we? (laughs) Young people, if you're here with your children today... Treasure these times. I know it's hard with little children at times. I know it's frustrating. I know you feel like you're spinning your wheels at times. But these are precious, precious times that will be gone like that. I see anyone that's my age or older shaking their heads as I say that. And I don't know what I would pay to have one hour back of that just to hold them and affirm them and read to them or what, whatever you would do. Enjoy these days. It's a precious time. Well, here's what the letter concluded with. In a very real sense, therefore, God graciously meets our basic needs with a vital relationship with each member of the Trinity. Feelings of security, significance, and satisfaction can be ours as we avail ourselves of the resources he has given us. So you see, Tom, your true security and the meeting of these needs comes from the Lord and not from any group of which you may be a member. I know that the decision facing you and Tammy is a weighty one. We are concerned for you and your family Do let me know if we can be of further service to you. And it was signed by a man by the name of Dr. Cyril J. Barber, counseling associate. That changed my life, friends. It didn't happen like, and everything was different. But from that moment on, I started to be free. And yes, there were some hard times ahead. But I will tell you this, and it's true of most things that we anticipate coming in life that we know are going to be hard. The anticipation of it was far, far greater than the actual happening. By the time it came about, there was really, it was just a natural parting of the ways. In spring of 1986, I honestly had never entertained a thought of, of, a, of Wallace Community Bible Church. Perhaps some others had, but I never had. That came within a few months' time, and I got to believe that God was behind it. Here we are 30 years later. And I take no credit for that. The only credit I'll take is I was, may have been smart enough to just simply let God have his way with me. And most of the time, the opposite is true. We're just, and me too, we're just too dumb to allow that. Well, the final thing I want to leave you with is what I wrote years later about this. It would be hard to overestimate, understate the importance of this letter to me when I received it in 1986. 
It hit the nail on the head, so to speak, regarding what held me back from being bold for what I had come to believe as truth. Taking an honest inventory of my life, it was necessary that my belongingness, worth, and competence were derived from my heritage, which were centered on my maternal family and church denomination. This this explained why I so greatly feared not pleasing Grandpa Beer, why I viewed leaving the church as such a monumental decision. It also made clear to me why my mother was so fiercely determined to measure up in the eyes of her father and the church, why she had endured a life of misery to remain in her circumstancing circumstances. Realizing that God had so totally provided for my fulfillment through a relationship with him was the most liberating blessed truth I have ever learned. I lost I long ago lost track of how many times I have used the concepts of belongingness, worth, and competence in personal evangelism. These are concepts that everyone can identify with because they are permanent, ongoing needs that everyone has. At this time, I rejoiced in these concepts but had no idea how critical they would be in preserving my mental, physical, and spiritual well-being through the massive eruption that was coming. I want you to know, as I alluded to earlier, the actual happening of it wasn't a fraction of what I thought it would be. I am very thankful that there were never any mean words or actual fights that happened. Yes, it compromised some relationships, uh, but for the most part, it really was not that big of a deal when it actually happened. And I know it hurt my grandma and grandpa beer, but it never affected our relationship. Uh, We had great fellowship until the time he died 10 years or so later at age 99. The first year he probably wrote, well, he listened to just about every message that was ever preached from this church. And he first critiqued them each week. But about a year later, he came to me and he said, Tom, I want you to know I've begun to pray for your church. He said, you are reaching people that we can't. And in my mind, that was the greatest measure of the man whom I so admired, that he could say that and look beyond his circumstances to the greater good of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you all today, when you think of your basic emotional needs, what are they derived from? Are they, do you find fulfillment from your job, your social circle? Your memberships and relations in in organizations, you find it in relationships, you find it in money. What do you find it in? Every one of you, every one of us is finding it in something. But everything I just named can change. Everything. Relationships change. Money goes away. Clubs Sooner or later, organizations will fail you. Even the best of people will at times fail you. God will never fail you. Ever. So if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to tell you, you are loved. And when I say you are loved... We know now a little bit of the context that we're talking about, what Pastor Josh means when he says that each week. We love you because God loved us, because God has blessed us in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, because he has fulfilled our deepest needs through salvation and and being brought into a right relationship with him. And we desperately want that for you. We want you to feel like you belong, like you have worth, like you have competence. That is the sense in which we love you. And that all comes with a simple prayer of faith, confessing sin and asking Jesus to come into your life and make you new. By God's grace, through that faith, it will happen. Your image of God will be restored. And if you're here today and you think, yeah, that's right, I do agree with you, Tom, but the problem is I just don't really know what I can do. I don't know how to serve in the church. I don't know how to do something good for God. I'll just end with one simple story about my dad. We all love Big Lou, didn't we? When he was about 50, early 50s, he quit farming. It was coming to the end of the family farm and he just had to do it. 
So he went to work in a, in a kitchen cabinet company in Napanee. And dad was a simple man in a, in a good sense of the word. He, he was very comfortable once he knew his surroundings and could do something. Competence. But he got there and he did not understand what was happening. He could not see, or for whatever reason, it was too complex. He, he tried to see the whole thing. He was the new guy on the block. He felt like an outsider. He felt incompetent. He began to, to feel worthless. And a man who was always Mr. Happy became very deeply saddened and despondent. And I can remember my mom one time saying to him, Louie, pick one thing. Just pick one thing. There's certainly one thing that you can do and learn and contribute to the organization. He took the advice and he learned how to make frames for the base cabinets. And he did that for 10 or 12 years until he retired. And he took great pride in the fact that he could make those nice and square and he rarely got one back. So he had worth, he had competence, and by the end, everyone loved him there. Now, granted, that was an institution and they had their warts on them just like every institution does. But if you're, think, if you're that way with the church, what in the world can I do? Well, we can all pray for the church. We can all contribute our physical re- or financial resources to the church. There's a couple things that we're commanded to do by Scripture. Well, what's more? How many of you would be incapable of standing out there and handing out a bulletin? You do that. How many? I, I mean, there's just... Hundreds of things to be done in the church. The whole thing is do something. Pick something. Learn how to start somewhere. Don't just grow old sitting in the, in the pews or you'll never feel like you should feel or rewarded like you can be rewarded. You know, we talked about the power of God to curse and the power of God to bless. I'm telling you, God wants to bless you. He wants to bless me. And the way he blesses us is through obedience and service. So let's get off defense and go on offense. That's my encouragement today. May God bless his word. Thanks for listening to my story. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father God, we thank you so much for this day. I just thank you that you've used me in life in ways that I never would have imagined or thought possible. And I just know, Lord, it's all because of your good grace. I pray that if there are any here today who, who needs desperately to have these needs of, of belongingness and worth and competence filled, that they, they would come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ by your grace through faith. And Lord, for those of us who, who do know you and, and we're not satisfied with our performance and our, our service of you, I just pray that you'll put a thorn under our seat and help us to get busy doing something for your glory, because we know, Lord, we'll feel better and everyone will benefit. Thank you again for this day. We pray your blessing upon your word and thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our precious Savior. Amen.